This week we're talking about large format film photography with Ben Horn, and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. This is Nick Page, and as always, thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I appreciate all of you guys so much, and watching the numbers of the podcast grow has been really, really cool. I'm humbled, and I'm thankful. Before we jump into this week's episode, I want to remind you that we have a Facebook group for all the listeners of this show. You can find that over on Facebook. Just do a search for Landscape Photography Podcast, and you'll find the group there. I'm also excited to announce that I'm going to be launching a workshop within the next week or so to Ireland. This is going to be a workshop on the northern coast of Ireland where we're going to be photographing seascapes, castles, amazing trees, unique rock formations. Northern Ireland is absolutely gorgeous and we're going to be spending four days and three nights photographing some of the most unique locations in the region. I'm teaming up with my good friend and Irish photographer, Neil Ritchie, on this. And together, we're going to be going to a bunch of the most iconic places in Northern Ireland. So if you're interested, you can find all of my workshops as well as my tutorials over at nickpagephotography.com. So this week, we're talking about large format film photography with Ben Horn. Ben is best known for his YouTube channel where he's been chronicling his photo adventures for a long time now. He's been doing it since before vlogging was a thing. And what makes Ben so unique is the fact that he's doing large format 8x10 film photography. And it's really, really fascinating to watch his approach and just to see what he has to go through that the average digital photographer does not. So... This week, we're going to be talking a lot about that process, and I'm excited to sit down and talk with him. So with that, let's sit back and relax and talk about large format film photography with Ben Horn. So I'm sitting down with Ben Horn. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Ben. It's awesome to awesome to be here, man. It's it's I, I've listened to some of the the podcasts you've done, and and uh, it's it's pretty fun stuff. Thanks for coming on. I'm excited because I've been following you on YouTube for a while, and kind of like we were talking before we started recording, you're kind of a, a vlogger's vlogger because the quality and the amount of effort that you put into your your journals are just really inspiring for somebody else that does video uh, i just appreciate the the quality that you put into it yeah it's it's one of the things that's kind of evolved over the years i mean i started doing this back in it's like late 2009 early 2010 kind of before vlogging was was a thing that's that's why i've i've always called them video journals because there i don't know that there really was a name for it as much back then but yeah it's i've just kind of had many many years to sort of uh, get annoyed by various things that didn't work out very well and uh, try to figure out ways to to solve various, you know, audio and video related mm-hmm. issues through the years and always looking to up my game, which I think is is an important thing from a both a video and a, a photo standpoint. Uh, granted, we're going to start talking about the, you know, the photography equipment that you use, but it's it's an interesting dynamic that here you are, you're shooting eight by 10 film and yet you are embracing some of the most modern technologies for your video. Like you're shooting an A7S two and like really nice mics and stuff. And it's interesting to see like the old school stuff mingled with the brand new technologies. 
Yeah, that's that's I think the the part about it I really like um, from a photo standpoint. It's kind of nice to know that the lenses I have, the camera I have, I mean, I could use those for the rest of my life. And, and you know, it, it's a mature technology. Nothing's really changing. You know, the photo I shoot today will be the same quality as the photo I shot five years ago and same quality as the photo I shoot five years from now. Um, but at the same time, I do kind of like playing with toys and stuff. So, you know, the video side is where I really get a chance to kind of experiment with that, play with that. And, uh, you know, the, whether it's the sliders, the mics, the the camera, I mean, I got to keep things pretty simple. Um, but at the same point, uh, it's 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 kind of fun to to play with the all the latest gadgets and stuff on the video side of things. Right, for sure. Anybody that watches your videos already knows this, but in a lot of your videos, you're backpacking into locations. So you're going out, you're you're packing like tents and stuff. You know, you're taking this huge camera, plus you're taking a v- nice vlogging setup. How much is your backpack weighing? That's one of the things that I'm always asking myself when I'm watching you walk through these shots is like, how much does that bag weigh? So it, it varies quite a bit. Um, if I'm actually on the full on backpacking trips, I mean, I've, I've been trying to reduce the amount of weight that I carry year by year. The, the first year I started doing the actual backpacking with it, it was in 2012. I was carrying way too much weight. I, I had like 80 something pounds. It was oh, ridiculous. That's crazy. But I, I was not allowed to complain because the, the friend of mine I was on the trip with uh, he's carrying about the same amount of weight, but before we even started the hike, his his waist belt broke on his backpack. Oh! So he was carrying all the weight on his shoulders. Um, so I just had to kind of like be all casual, like yeah, you know, it's yeah, it's it's a pretty rough hike, you know. But uh, uh <laughs> but yeah, since since then I, I've learned a lot. Now I'm actually at the point where I'm getting ready for my next trip, which is going to be in the spring, and that's going to be a backpacking trip. And I actually have my my pack sitting near me right now. And I got the the camera in there, the lenses, the film holders. I don't have the video set up in there yet, but I'm going to go really lightweight for that. But uh, I got like the uh, the bivy sack, the sleeping bag, everything. I just basically need food, water, and video kit. But I'm only at 39 pounds. So oh, wow. I've been able to reduce it significantly. But that also means I have to make a lot of sacrifices. Um, the actual kit that if I'm not backpacking, if I'm just, you know, going to a place like Zion or Death Valley where I'm just like, you know, hiking in from where my where my truck is parked. Um, I'll probably carry about know, like 50 pounds or so, but that there's also oh. some bigger video equipment I'm taking with me. That's just kind of like my normal load, man. That, that is a lot of weight though. You have to be seriously in shape. I would, I would melt under that much weight. <laughs> it, you know, it's something I've gotten used to apparently just from all the years of punishing my lower body, like my legs have built up pretty well, uh, to the point where, it, it, uh, my legs always seem to stay pretty pretty well in shape, but I, I do try to go on test hikes and stuff before going on the actual backpacking trips, just to you know make sure everything's all all working out pretty well. But yeah, it's it's just something you get used to. I guess I'm kind of like a mule in that regard. So I really know zero about film photography. It, it kind of gives you an idea of the age that we live in. Here I am. I'm a professional photographer, quote unquote. Because I do it for a living, and I probably cannot even load film. The, my only experience with film is like the little disposable cameras you get at Walgreens. <laughs> so you're shooting with an eight by ten. How many lenses are you taking with you? What are the focal lengths of those lenses, uh, and what does that set up weigh? So as far as the lenses, um, they're all going to be prime lenses, and I basically have. I have four lenses for the most part. I have a, a wide angle, 
Uh, and the focal lengths, when, when I say the numbers, it's going to sound completely foreign, but my wide angle is 150 millimeter lens. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy the way it works out, but like the easy way to do in the math is like uh, a normal lens on eight by 10 is a 300 millimeter. And so if you figure my 300 millimeter lens, it's like a 50 millimeter, give or take my 150 is about half that. So it's like a, somewhere between a, a 20 and a 25, depending on how you account for the aspect ratio. Um, I also have a 450 and a 600, but yeah, I, I don't carry all the lenses with me all the time. Sometimes I'll just kind of choose based on the scene and what I think I'm going to shoot. I'll just kind of choose what to take with me, but uh, I certainly can. Um, but then also it depends on the the camera I have with me. I currently have uh, three different eight by 10 cameras though. Two of them, one, one of them is my primary camera. It's made by Arca Swiss. Um, and that one I've been using for only about a half year now because my other one kind of got destroyed, but then rebuilt. <laughs> and then I have a, a new one for lightweight backpacking. Um, so the, the backpacking camera is made by Intrepid. It's actually made of plywood, which is, which is kind of interesting. Um, but it weighs less than five pounds. And by contrast, my, uh, Arca Swiss camera is probably about five and a half pounds heavier than that. So, oh, wow. and also the, the film holders that actually accounts for a lot of bulk and weight as well. Though I have some wood ones that kind of keep it nice and lightweight. It, it's, it's more so the, the bulk. I have to kind of carry it in a uh, traditional backpacking style bag um, just because traditional photo bags can't really deal with that size and the sort of the bulk that I have to carry around. Yeah. And also you have to have a nice stable base, which that's something that has definitely improved over the years. You know, Ansel Adams was not using a carbon fiber gitzo. Yeah. And, and so what, what tripod are you using? So I have two that I use for the still camera. So I have a, a three series Gitzo systematic, and then I have a five series uh, Gitzo systematic. I use a three series for most shots, and that's also what I use for backpacking. The five series is one I'll use if I'm setting the camera up in water or if I'm setting it up in a sand dune, uh, just because the legs are more rigid and uh, it just kind of deals better with the vibration, but it's kind of a heavier tripod. But then I also have a little baby zero series Gitzo I use for video. And I, I lug that around with me pretty much everywhere I go. It's kind of my, my selfie stick, I guess you would say. Yeah. Yeah. And even the, though these are carbon fiber tripods, they're still not light. You know, that five series, how much that's probably like a five pound tripod or something, right? Uh, probably a little more than that. I think my three series is about five pounds. Oh, wow. I think the five series is, it's gotta be two, three pounds more than that. Oh, so man. it's, it, it, yeah, you'll feel it kind of tugging on the side of your bag a little bit. So that's why I use the three series most of the time. Because you're dealing with such a large sensor, you know, it's not a sensor, but yeah. you know, uh, the type of settings that you have to use to get significant depth of field is probably very different than digital as well, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Basically what sometimes people don't really realize about large format is that it is an incredibly thin depth of field. Um, that's why you have to do all the movements as far as the, the tilting and all that sort of stuff in order to try to give the perception of a larger depth of field. But like my, my go-to aperture for like every single photo is, is F45, which would be kind of like if you're shooting a full frame camera, I guess it'd be kind of like in terms of depth of field, maybe like if you're just doing a straight shot without anything else, maybe it's like F8 or something like that. So you have actually, even at F45, it's a relatively short, shallow depth of field. So that's why you have to do uh, tilts to do that. And by the time you kind of do the lens movements, shooting at F45 will probably give the perception of shooting at maybe like F16 or something like that, where you you have a larger 
depth of field, but I have to do some tricks and stuff in order to make it look that way. Right. So, I, and I'm envisioning this and I, I don't know if I'm envisioning it correctly, but are you tilting the, the lens or are you tilting the film holder, the, the back part of the camera? So both. So the, when you tilt the lens, um, that is what allows you to adjust the plane of focus. So instead of the plane of focus being parallel to the film plane, you can sort of drop it down at an angle, which is really handy for if you're out in the desert or somewhere where it's just kind of like, you know, this flat plane that you're photographing all the way to some mountains in the background. Uh, you can drop the plane of focus down where it connects the foreground at your feet all the way out to the mountains in the background. And this plane of focus kind of skims over the whole landscape. Uh, and then when you stop down the lens, it kind of expands into a wedge and you kind of get everything in focus. Um, but that doesn't really work well if you have any vertical subjects like trees or anything because they would just get blurry near the top of the frame. Um, but that's that's what you do with the front movements. And then the rear movements is more to correct for perspective. And it's actually, that's the more powerful movements as far as composition because you can enlarge a foreground in relation to a background or vice versa. So if there is like a really cool foreground I want to emphasize, I can adjust the tilt to the back and then kind of like enlarge the wildflowers in the foreground or the salt patterns in the foreground or whatever it is. So it's, it's kind of a cool tool. Kind of, you could do the same sort of thing if you were to take a, uh, like a regular photo into Photoshop and just kind of make it into a trapezoid and kind of like, uh, you know, enlarge part of it. I can do that in camera, which is kind of cool. That is like mind blowing to me right now. I'm like, oh, yeah. the possibilities. That is so yeah, cool. It, it, it's really cool because, I mean, it, it might seem intimidating at first, but once you're actually trying to set up a composition, mm -hmm. um, you just start looking at it like, oh man, this this is working pretty good. But man, those, those mountains, they just don't stand out enough. And so you can kind of tweak the back and enlarge the mountains. And then you'll see right there on the ground glass when it kind of clicks a little bit better. And so it's, it's a really powerful tool to use. You know, as we're talking about this, it's, uh, it's very apparent. And especially like if you watch your videos that the, the types of photos that you're taking, because you have to, you can only take a limited amount of film in with you. You have to be mm -hmm. so, you know, thoughtful about the, the whole process that you're not just, you're definitely not spray, spraying and praying. This is pretty much the exact opposite of that, where you have to really think about the different shots that you're going to take. How long does it, like, when you find a composition that you're going to take, how long does that setup process take until, like, you're setting up and then take the photo? So, I can set up decently fast if I need to. If something crazy is going on and I'm just rushing, realistically, within about 10 minutes, I probably have the camera set up and ready to shoot. But I will feel very rushed in the process. Typically, I prefer to have closer to an hour so I can just kind of, and it's not just sitting there staring at the camera the whole time, but it's, you know, set up a composition, kind of look at it for a while, then kind of wander off, go do something else, come back and look at it again with fresh eyes. And maybe I'll see things a little bit differently. Um, so it's just kind of like the going back to it again and again. That's the sort of process I, I prefer to work in where I won't really have any regrets after the fact. But yeah, I, I could get a, a shot set up and probably... 10 minutes or so, maybe a little faster if need be. Wow. Such a completely different process to sh shooting digital. Shooting digital, oh, yeah. you don't really have that price value on every single click like you do with film. Like, So what film are you using and how much does the film even cost? So there's three different films I use for the most part. The The first one and the one I use the most is uh, Fuji Velvia 50. It's, it's a color slide film that has uh, a good amount of saturation to it and a good amount of contrast. But I like to use that film in situations when 
it's a relatively low contrast scene, usually in very even light. And if you use Velvi in those scenes, it's actually pretty true to life. You get a little bit of a saturation kick, but it's nothing crazy. If, if you use that same film in like a sunrise or sunset, sometimes it can go a little crazy at times. And I, I try to avoid that. Um, but Velvia 50 is one I use a lot. I also use another slide film from Fuji called Provia 100, which does really well for longer exposures. And also it's a bit more mild when it comes to saturation and contrast. So it can handle sort of those crazy sunrise and sunsets better. And then the other one I use, it's a color negative film. And color negative film has a crazy huge dynamic range to it, probably even better than what you can get on digital cameras. Just so long as you don't underexpose your shadows, your highlights will go for like five, six stops above neutral and still hold detail. Oh, wow. Um, which is crazy. pretty crazy. But all each of those films, uh, Kodak Ektar and Velvia 50, for a box that has 20 sheets of film in it, it's around, it's getting close to $400. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah. That's crazy. And then there's the processing. The processing, oh. if I process a bunch of sheets of film, um, I think for my lab, it's like nine bucks a sheet or so. So I always factor in just under $30 per click. But at wow. the same time, I, I try to shoot doubles on scenes just because mm -hmm. stuff can happen. So in reality for each scene, usually it's at least somewhere around 60 bucks. But you don't think about that when you're in the field no. um, because you just don't shoot a lot of photos. And so it actually all balances out pretty well in the end. And um, a little while back, I did a comparison. I kind of looked at how much I spent on film and processing per year over like a three-year time and kind of did the math on it. I, I think it ended up being pretty similar to if you buy the latest and greatest digital camera and then when the replacement for, comes out for it, you sell your old one, you buy a new one. So it's about the same pace as staying up to date with the current digital technology. So it's not too bad. Yeah, because that's the thing is your camera is not going to ever be obsolete. <laughs> you know, it's film doesn't change so much. Exactly. So I can kind of get an idea of what the, the investment is. How much are, do the lenses cost that you're using? I imagine the majority of the image quality difference is through the lenses, right? Well, the, the cool thing about large format is that there's not a lot of enlargement made from the size of the film to the final print. So the lenses are actually, pretty much every lens is going to be an amazingly sharp lens. Um, if you compare that to, if you shoot like a full frame camera where you take this, you know, 24 by 36 millimeter sensor, and then you enlarge that to like a 20 by 30 inch print, you're enlarging the lens artifacts and everything that that lens produces greatly so. But on large format, if you start with an 8x10 or a 4x5 sheet of film, um, you really don't run into lens flaws, which is which is kind of interesting. Though, like my wide angle will have a bit of a vignette to it, which actually can be kind of a cool look because it puts emphasis towards the middle of the frame. But you don't really run into issues with color fringing or sharpness. It's, it's all actually pretty good stuff. But all the lenses I have, I they were all bought used because they don't really make the stuff new anymore. The popularity of shooting large format has increased a bit through the years. And also the has sort of driven the price of the used lenses up. But I'd say on average, most of my lenses are about a, maybe about a thousand dollars each, give or take. So it's it's not it's not too bad, but some of them are really hard to come by. Like my my six hundred millimeter lens, which is my longer lens. There's like people selling them for like $4,000 each because wow. there's just not a lot of them out there anymore, which is kind of crazy. That's crazy. 
So what is the workflow like? Like you mentioned that you have a, a lab that you send it to. So you take the photo, you go back home. What is what is the rest of the process like for you? Uh, so basically, I uh, flatbed scan the film. I, I usually and I have an Epson V700, which is a little bit of an older scanner now. But I did have to make a custom made like scanning mask because if you just lay the film down on the scanner glass, you get all these Newton rings, which are like almost like Moray pattern kind of things that happen. Um, so I had to create like this custom mask that I taped the film to, and then I lay it down on the scanner. I flatbed scan it. Then I end up with a, uh, a TIFF file. And I think it's a, I think it's like a 16 bit, whatever it is. It's, it's a really high bit depth. And then I take that into Photoshop. Then it's usually just a matter of working with the, the, the curves and layers and masks. Uh, my goal is oftentimes to try to get the scan of the film back to just the way that the film originally looked. Because you have to scan it at a little bit of a lesser contrast, lesser saturation to try to capture all that information. But once you have that file, then you can kind of bring it back to the way that it really should be on on the computer. So I, I use Photoshop for for the editing um, and mostly just curves and layers and and uh, stuff like that. Resolution wise, how does that how does that scan compare to to a digital camera? Like, are you dealing with more resolution, less resolution? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, my flatbed scan, I, I don't. If I'm going to print a photo, I don't usually print the scan. I don't print from the scan for my flatbed scan. I'll usually have it drum scan. But uh, first of all, from the flatbed scan, I usually scan it at probably equivalent to maybe like 30 by 40 inches at 300 pixels per inch. And I see that as kind of like a, a digital loop in a way where I can kind of look at that scan, make sure everything's all good, everything's all sharp. But ultimately, the best scans are from a different type of scanner called a drum scanner. It gives you better film flatness. It deals much better into scanning into the the deeper shadows and into the brighter highlights. Those scans, I'll usually have them scanned at about four hundred megapixels or so, which wow. is pretty insane. That's and really uh, insane. Yeah, and actually, just earlier today, uh, a friend of mine who recently bought a drum scanner and uh, he's scanning some film for me. He he, had, I, I sent him a batch of like four sheets of film. I'd, I'd requested that they be scanned at. Um, around a 400 megapixel size. And he said, just for kicks, I want to try scanning one of these in two different halves because there's a limit to how big the scanner can do. But if you scan it in two parts and then you stitch it together and uh, it was like a 700 something megapixel file. <laughs> that is um, insane. So, yeah. So you scan it to whatever size you want, which is, which is kind of cool. And it holds up pretty well to that. It does. It does. Just so long as your technique was good. But there are some, the other thing that has been kind of almost liberating about shooting large format is that there are certain things that simply aren't possible. And there are some scenes where using the the front tilt where I can move the plane of focus around and, and all that kind of stuff. Some of that just isn't going to work on some scenes. And you have to sacrifice one part of the photo. You have to sacrifice the sharpness on one part of the photo in order to have the sharpness and the other parts that are the important parts. Um, so like, I don't really, I can't really do the focus stacking. I mean, I could, but it'd be expensive, but, um, (laughs) but I, I, I basically am able to kind of do what I can with the scene. And so maybe I'll have a a scene where there's like these cool rocks in the foreground that are, you know, nice and tack sharp. And there's some mountains in the background that are tack sharp, but maybe the mid ground gets a little soft in an area just because it wasn't physically possible to get everything. Yeah. And that's the sort of stuff you'll notice when you get a high risk scan. Um, but it's, it's just part of the process. 
So because of the limitations of, of shooting with film, how are you dealing with larger dynamic range scenes? Are you using a lot of graduated filters and stuff or how do you deal with the dynamic range? So I do, if I'm, if I'm shooting slide film, if I'm shooting Provia, if I'm shooting Velvia, I definitely do use grad filters. I have a, some leaf filters. I have some sing ray filters and that's definitely something that's really important because for slide film, well, first of all, I use a, a external light meter so I can kind of meter the scene. But if my highlights are any brighter than about two stops above my neutral reading, it, it's there's to give me no detail on that part of the film. Or if it's darker than about negative two, um, there's going to be no detail. So it's kind of like shooting JPEG in a way. Gotcha. And so I'll, I'll use grad filters for that. But if I'm shooting color negative film, all I have to do is just make sure that my shadow tones don't get too dark. And then the highlights can go like five or six stops greater than neutral. And there's still going to be detail there. Um, it kind of really kind of gracefully goes into the highlights and doesn't just kind of drop off like digital has a tendency to do. But on color negative film, the shadows can kind of drop off. So you have to make sure that you uh, you have plenty of detail in those shadows. But yeah, so if, if it's a really high contrast scene, I might shoot color negative film with no grads or I might shoot slide film with grads. So it just kind of depends. And because you're you're scanning and then taking stuff into Photoshop, would it be possible to somehow like basically exposure blend where you're dual processing a single slide once darkening down the sky and once uh, keeping the shadow detail in the foreground? You certainly could, though I think by the time you do a second exposure, things might change because it yeah. does take a little while time, you know, to put another film holder in there and, and possibly remeter the scene. So it's not been anything I've tried, though I will say that typically so long as I'm, I'm using the proper film, um, there really aren't any real surprises as far as... It also, I'll say that, you know, if you, if you have a good trust in the light meter, yeah. um, it'll, it'll kind of guide you in the right direction, but yeah, that's those, those sort of techniques that work really well for digital. Um, they'd be a little harder to do with film. So yeah, let's talk about the light meter. Cause that's probably a super important tool for you. Oh, uh, for sure. <laughs> uh, what is your process for determining the exposure and what lighter meter do you use? So I have a Seiconic uh, 758, which is one generation back. It's a spot meter, so I can uh, kind of look through it and kind of meter off distant subjects. It's the same sort of thing as if you use a spot meter on the camera, but it works a little bit differently because the, the way I use it, basically, I'll, I'll meter, I'll, I'll kind of point it at the, the brightest part of a scene that I want to kind of hold detail in. I can kind of log that into memory. Then I'll aim it at the darkest part of the scene I want to hold into memory. I log that into memory. And then I can average it. So it gives me a meter reading kind of split between the two of them. Um, but then I have to look through the meter and kind of evaluate how bright and how dark things are and, and see if the film can handle it. And so it'll just give me numbers at that point. It'll say something is like, you know, half stop greater than neutral or three stops greater than neutral. And I'll just have to know off the top of my head how the film is going to handle that. But there are some, some really tricky things that... Basically, the way it works on the lenses, the the shutter speeds that are you know already pre-timed for me, they're in full stop increments. Um, so you know, second, half second, quarter second, and most of the time, my exposure times are fairly long, and they'll be measured in seconds. So I actually just use a stopwatch and time it. But there is this zone which is really annoying, where if I want to be at a certain aperture, like if I want to shoot f forty five, but the light's changing fast, but now I'm kind of at the mercy of what my one stop increment shutter speeds are. 
I got to do a lot of mental math in the field. And that, that could actually be uh, rather frustrating where with digital, it's pretty easy. Everything's in one third stop increments. There, there are times like on my recent trip to Death Valley where I was I was struggling trying to come up with the proper exposure for the scene as the light was changing so fast. Um, it, it all kind of worked out in the end. Yeah, that's got to be such a challenge. And one of the things that people always say about digital photography is that the learning curve is so much easier. You know, it's, you can learn digital so much faster. How long have you been shooting film and what was the learning curve like shooting large format? So I started shooting large format in two, actually it was late 2008. And then I went on my first dedicated solo landscape trip where I used the large format in, it was actually Super Bowl Sunday of 2009. And the learning curve it's actually not, it's actually relatively fast with large format. But what it is, is that you got to make all kinds of mistakes to keep that learning curve going. It's the type of thing where you'll do something, you'll get the film back, you look at the results, you're like, oh, that was, that was horrible. I'm not going to do that again. And so you got to kind of like walk through all those right. mistakes. I think actually I learned faster just because every mistake is going to cost you a little bit of money. Yeah, because you have you a know, financial investment in learning yeah, when, it when as fast the, the, as possible. Yeah, you, you have the bill to pay for the lab. You look at it like, all right, I'm spending all this money on these photos that didn't turn out so good. Let's let's not have this happen again. <laughs> but one of the things that is, I think, deceptive about large format, I mean, the cameras look like they're incredibly intimidating. You have all these controls and stuff. It's actually the simplest camera that you'll ever really use. I mean, obviously, you have to do everything yourself. You have to make sure you do everything in the right order so that you don't expose the film before you're supposed to and, and all that kind of stuff. But the actual operation of the camera is incredibly simple, which is which is actually kind of nice. I think if people haven't seen anyone shooting large format before, um, they would actually be a little bit let down when they see the person making the exposure. Because it really is all this build up to that moment where you're just getting everything all set up and you have this like this subtle little click and then that's it. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it, there's no real big payoff for it until you get the film back. But but it is actually incredibly simple. I was able to learn it just based on going out there, using the camera, kind of making my own mistakes. And after a while, it just becomes second nature. You don't think about it and you just kind of operate on cruise control. Mm -hmm. Do you still ever shoot digital? Um I shoot some selfies from time to time, but uh, <laughs> that might be about it. It's, iPhone. Yeah. Um, I, I really don't. And it, it's kind of weird, but once you kind of get used to the level of control that you have when shooting film, and once you have the experience of seeing properly exposed transparency that's nice and sharp and you made all the right decisions, once, once you see that on a light on a light box with a loop, it's, it's kind of an experience that kind of changes you a little bit. So I just kind of see shooting with a large format is just, that's just the way that I take pictures. But, but also I, I think that I'm the type of person that needs to have some structure and some sort of constraints placed on me in order to kind of go to that extra mile and sort of find the subjects I'm really happy with. And I have a feeling that I probably wouldn't be as patient if I was shooting with digital. So, right. um, so yeah, I just reserve digital for, you know, iPhone snaps of, of my cats. That's, that's mostly it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than when that cat photo gets more likes than the one that you put the lots, tons of work into. <laughs> that, you know, that has a tendency to happen, but uh, you know, the, the internet is ruled by cats. So, you know, yeah, you know, exactly. It's gotta happen. I imagine that just the, the entire process is probably 
half of why you do it in the first place, right? Because it's a completely different experience from like, you know, going out with your digital camera and taking a hundred photos and then spending all of that time culling when you go back home. And there's not that that intense thought process and it's not very mindful. But when you're going out and shooting film, it almost looks like therapeutic in a way. It's very it's far more Zen looking, at least from the outside looking in. It it really is. Um because you have to kind of approach things a little bit differently. Once you kind of know how the film is going to react to certain situations, you kind of know what subjects are going to work well. Um, but also the the cameras I use, I mean, there's some pretty there's some pretty big limitations as far as what I can and what I can't shoot. And I think it really helps to guide me. Um, for the longest time, I would have a really hard time setting up my camera in the dark because you, you just can't, it's like setting up a, like a, a mirrorless camera or a DSLR where you have no viewfinder. Like you really can't see, you know, anything before sunrise. And so I would resort to, to leaving my camera set up in place overnight uh, because okay. that was just the only way I could shoot in the morning. I preferred to shoot in the morning because it was calm, which was the other issue mm-hmm. with large format. If it's windy, it doesn't even take much. It's going to shake that camera and it's going to ruin the photo. So I would end up, you know, going out the the day before I actually wanted to shoot a photo and find a composition for a subject I thought would look pretty good. You know, setting my camera up in the afternoon and kind of leaving it there overnight, coming back the next morning, it was all set up, focused, ready to go. And uh, that worked out really well for for many years uh, until I destroyed two cameras. But uh, (laughs) it's, you know, it's that sort of limitation though that I can attribute to uh, some of the photos I've shot over the years where that technique worked out really well, but now I can actually set up my camera decently in the dark because I have a, a different camera. But yeah, there's there's lots of limitations and it's, it is a very kind of zen-like when you're out there. And the other thing I'll mention is that once you get the camera set up, once you have your composition set, once you have your focus set and you put your film holder in there, you don't have a viewfinder anymore. So you have to just kind of know what you're shooting and know what your composition is. And so if you see some like, you know, high clouds streaming in the scene, you have to kind of know if they're going to be in the shot or if they're not going to be in the shot. Mm -hmm. So when I actually, I I take the photo, I'm usually kind of standing next to my camera, just holding onto the cable release, holding onto a self timer or holding onto a a little uh, stopwatch that used to time a shot. Um, But I don't even really think about the camera there. So it's more like me just kind of sitting there enjoying the scene as opposed to experiencing it through the viewfinder, which is, which is also kind of nice. And it's just putting you out there for longer as well. Like, you, you know, you're talking about spending an hour on a photo. So many people with their digital cameras, they hop out of the car, they walk for five minutes, they go take a hundred photos, they walk back to the car and then they're done. Your process is actually putting you out there for a lot longer at a time. And it just seems nice in that way. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of a a long term approach. Um, like the trip I recently went on to Death Valley. Um, I mean, Death Valley is the type of place where it, it's certainly kind of a sunrise sunset sort of location. I would you know I would have a a photo for sunrise planned, and uh, typically I'd leave the camera overnight. But on this particular trip, I got back from there's actually three different scenes I shot at sunrise where I kind of knew pretty much where I wanted to be. Um, but then for sunset, I'd just go and. And you know, spend the whole day kind of wandering around looking for interesting subjects and um, kind of with my mind thinking, hey, I got to find something by this evening and, you know, we'll see what happens. And I would, you know, set up on a composition that I thought would have potential. And even though like the, the sky to my south that was not in the frame was kind of lighting up like crazy, I'm just kind of enjoying that, but kind of ignoring that and just kind of holding steady to the composition I found. And 
Um, sure enough, that composition worked out as well. So it, it's really nice when things are going crazy and you have this kind of light exploding that you have a plan. You just kind of stick to that plan. And uh, typically it works out pretty well. Yeah, because you're working under the constraints of, of the camera that you have. A lot of people shooting digital, when the light explodes, they just turn into chickens with their heads cut off and they start <laughs> freaking out and trying to find that new composition, trying to find as many compositions as they can, rather than just sticking to your plan and shooting what you're going to shoot. Yeah, and because like once the light starts getting pretty good like that, I mean, I might have time to find another composition, but by then it's usually getting kind of dark and I, I can't even see my viewfinder anymore. And, yeah. and there's been many times where the the shot that I thought was going to be good just didn't pan out at all. And then everything else all around me is kind of going off. But at that point, it's actually just kind of nice to sit there and just kind of take it in, enjoy it, um, mm-hmm. rather than just running around and, and trying to chase the light because... That's the thing. I really don't like chasing the light. I like to just kind of sit there and wait for the light, which is, I think, a lot more rewarding. Yeah, and a whole lot more enjoyable, too. So has shooting film, large format film, because of the restrictions, has it changed the way that you shoot or what you choose to shoot because of the restrictions? Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, that's I would say that if you're to look at any of the photos I've shot on film, they typically have a rather calm feeling to them because they were shot when it was calm. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of, it's kind of cool the way that works out And the subjects um, that I shoot. It's, it's usually ones where I don't know, it's hard to describe, but the, basically the, the limitations of the camera, I can't shoot in the wind. Um, I can't set up, you know, before sunrise, I, I can't shoot a lot of photos. Um, it has really shaped me as far as what I can and can't shoot. And I think if I, if I was shooting digital, I would still have that same mentality, which, which is really, really good. Cause I just kind of would view things under the scope of kind of how, you know, the structure of large format. Um, but, but that was, that was one thing that, that I did notice is that all the photos I've shot through the years, you know, it's all when it's like, just like really calm, you know, which, which is kind of cool. Cause that's sort of the, the feeling that I want the photos to have. Yeah, because that's the conditions you were in. <laughs> I imagine if yes, it's going to be yes. windy, you don't even bother to go out, right? You know, I, I, I'll I attempt to set up the camera just to, if anything, just try out a composition on a scene, maybe thinking about it for another time, but kind of knowing in the back of my mind that, no, I'm not going to be shooting any photos today because it'll just be it'll just be a waste of a film. But um, but yeah, some, sometimes it's nice to at least give it a shot because as you get closer to sunset, usually the wind does calm down and usually there's an opportunity where I can, when I can take a photo. So if you're using an aperture of F45, your shutter speed typically has to be really long. What kind of shutter speeds are you typically shooting with? So if it is, I mean, it, it's usually going to be measured in seconds pretty easily. Um, but the, the film I use most Velvia 50 is a 50 ISO film, but that's, it's actually a little bit different than digital in that regard because in film, there's something called reciprocity failure where as you do longer exposures, the film kind of doesn't respond as much to the light. So you actually have to give it more time. There was a, a photo I shot you know, just kind of in open shade in Zion on my recent trip. I was in a, a wash on the east side of the park and there were some of these like frosty frozen leaves on the ground that, that looked kind of cool. And I was in the shade, but probably about... I don't know, 20 feet away from me, there was some sunlight hitting um, an embankment and that was kind of reflecting in the scene. And that was a 20 second long exposure, but there was, there was, there were several factors that were in play there. Part of it was because if I shoot a close-up photo, I have to overextend the bellows. Um, kind of like if you put extension tubes on like a 35 millimeter lens, you can kind of focus closer. 
But when I do that, I have to add more time to the exposure because it actually darkens the image. But then reciprocity failure, you have to add even more time. So <laughs> I mean, I'm, so much I'm, that goes into that. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm easily, uh, most of my shots are timed on my stopwatch and I'd say just a normal shot in the shade, um, eh, like five, six, seven seconds is, is pretty normal, but yeah, it can, it can be well into the minutes and some film will do better than others when it comes to the long exposures and stuff. But yeah, it's, it, it's actually nice when it's measured in seconds cause it's far easier to time. Um, when I'm at the mercy of what the lens does, whether it's like a half second or a quarter second, it's actually a little harder to work sometimes. That's so cool. You've definitely inspired me as well as many other people, I'm sure, to give film a try. Do you have any recommendations for like that first large format camera to go out and try just to get your feet wet with it? Um, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, there's, I mean, lots of like used options out there, but um, there's also some some new stuff out there as well, which is which is kind of cool. I always steer people in the direction of uh, the Intrepid Camera Company. They're they're based out of England, and they actually uh, they use plywood, and then they kind of like machine the parts out of plywood, which is kind of cool. And they're very lightweight cameras. They're very basic cameras. Um, you don't have all the sort of the fancy geared movements and stuff that uh, that some of the other cameras will have, but they're very lightweight. Um, but it's kind of a good starting point to kind of see if it's something you really like to do. Um, but also it's a good camera because it's a very lightweight camera. So I have of the, of the two cameras that I'm using primarily now, I have an Arca Swiss, which is kind of like the best of the best when it comes to the cameras. They're, they're crazy expensive, but everything's geared. Everything's precise. It's so easy to work with. And and that was, it's like an $8,500 camera. So it's, it's not a cheap light proof box. But then the Intrepid 8x10 that I use, they're like a $600 camera. From the standpoint that they're both just a lightproof box, you put a lens on one side and a film holder on the other side, they're both going to do the same thing. Um, But I would say take take a look at the Intrepid. I think going straight to 8x10 would be kind of insane. Um, It's not really necessary. 4x5 gives you all the detail you really need. But an Intrepid 4x5 camera, it's I think they're like less than $300. You can get a good used lens for maybe like a hundred and fifty bucks or somewhere in that range, um, and it's it's a fun thing to to play with. It's a fun thing to experiment with. It might not be for everyone. It's it's got a lot of limitations, but I, I know a lot of photographers who were diehard digital shooters, and they're just looking for something a little different, something to challenge them a little bit more. And um, I know quite a few people who have now they just shoot film because they just really, uh, I don't know, they just enjoy the process. Yeah. The process has to be just so completely different that it makes the entire experience, um, completely different. And I think that'd be really cool for a change. Uh, where can people find out more about you and see all of your photos? So my website is benhorn.com. That's B E N H O R N E.com. Uh, that'll link to all the social media stuff. But I'm also on Twitter uh, at Ben Horn. Um, on Instagram, uh, Ben Horn Photo. I'm on Facebook, but not really. <laughs> I, I I try sometimes, but uh, but then the main thing is is YouTube, and uh, you can go to my website. It'll link to my YouTube. But also, if you just type in my name, Ben Horn, on YouTube, you'll you'll pull up the channel. And I'm in the process of posting my Death Valley videos right now, which uh, which I will say was was a pretty interesting trip. 
Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on, Ben. I highly recommend his YouTube channel. It is incredibly fun to watch and inspirational. And it's been a joy to have you on. Thanks for coming on, Ben. Awesome. Appreciate it. And we'll catch you guys next week.